open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Uh, we're at Money 2020, the largest payments conference in the world. And I have uh, Halsey Miner, founder of BitReserve.org with me. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Halsey. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Could you give us a little bit of your uh, background to start with? You founded CNET, right? Yeah, I started CNET Networks in uh, 1993, and I ran it until February of 2000. I started a couple of companies internally that were spun out. One was a software company called Vignette, and then another was NBCI. When I left, we were a NASDAQ 100 company and one of two, uh, us and Yahoo, during the 90s. In 1999, I invested a little under $20 million in Salesforce.com and uh, was, uh, was quite frankly tired from running CNET and excited about Salesforce, and so I helped... Uh, Mark and John Dillon, who was the original CEO of, uh, of Salesforce, built the company for four and a half years and uh, also started a company called Grand Central that later became Google Voice and another called OpenDNS. And then about a year and a half ago, um, after watching uh, Bitcoin for a while, uh, around June of last year, I decided to launch BitReserve. Now, what, what in the world attracted a like a, a pioneer in the whole internet space to Bitcoin itself and specifically like the what you're doing with BitReserve and maybe you can explain a little bit about what you're doing with BitReserve also. Sure. What I saw immediately in Bitcoin was the idea of being able to exchange value in a standards-based way across the internet and what attracted me to the internet early on was the ability to exchange information in a standards-based way which told me that Ultimately, the business of publishing would become a very large business if the whole world basically drafted off of a single standard. And so what I saw in Bitcoin was, again, the sort of formative technology that would allow not just the exchange of information, but really the exchange of value. I was preoccupied with figuring out how this wonderful innovation could be turned into something that resembled money. And money has a very specific role in people's lives. Money is that which our bills come in. It is that which does not appear to change in value. It is the safe stuff that we uh, move our investments out of. And the part about Bitcoin that I sort of set about trying to understand and, and hopefully address is the need to own a volatile asset simply to participate in the ecology of Bitcoin. And it uh, was apparent to me, and I think it's been proven, that the, the, the market for people who will hold something volatile as money is a lot smaller than the people who will hold things that they do not perceive as volatile uh, as money, the U.S. dollar being probably the best example. So when I said about building BitReserve, the first thing I realized was it's impossible for Bitcoin to become non-volatile against every currency because every currency trades against every currency. So unless the U.N. were to simultaneously make the entire world accept Bitcoin, it would always be volatile somewhere. Even if it mirrored the dollar, 
it would mean it would be volatile against every other currency in the world. So mathematically, there was no hope of ever making Bitcoin non-volatile. There was only a political solution, and that would come from the UN, and I, I just didn't see that ever happening. Nor did I see people changing their mortgages to be in Bitcoin or their or their uh, car payments or even or even Walmart accepting Bitcoin um, and denominating in Bitcoin. And so that meant there was a there's a gap between the benefit that this digital currency could bring and its nature as a volatile asset. And that gap to me seemed to be a a significant hurdle towards the adoption ever in fact coming. And what I realized was was the problem for how to create something which is stable while being able to spend in another currency was, is actually solved by the banks and credit card companies a long time ago. I hold my money in dollars because that feels, to me, in the United States, that, that's what all my bills are in, so that feels secure. Now, Yeah, that's what, that's your numeraire. That, that's how you measure yeah, everything. Yeah, that's, that's how I measure everything. So, so, But when I go to London, uh, I can I can convert money into into, into pounds, but that's it's kind of an inefficient way because I don't know how many I'm going to need. But what I really do is the same thing most people do. I pull out my credit card and I buy things that are priced in pounds. And through the magic of the financial system, my dollars just get converted into pounds and the whole thing happens without me having to do anything. It's an incredible consumer experience. But the problem with it is banks charge a lot of money to do it. Yeah, so like upwards of 10%, 10% in some cases. So, so, so the idea was, well, what if I could let people hold money in any form that felt... You know, I didn't force them to have Bitcoin, but I gave them that option. But they could hold dollars, euros, yen, won, and hopefully by the end of uh, by the end of next year, you know, probably well over a hundred different currencies that all feel non-volatile to people. But from those currencies, just like the banks do or the credit card companies, I could let people send Bitcoin instantly. So you don't have to opt into volatility to opt into the Bitcoin economy. And the problem that I see with Bitcoin, it's a sort of hoarding phenomenon, and my warning to the world of Bitcoin is use it or lose it. Because Bitcoin has no value if it is simply being used for hoarding. Things that are hoarded, I mean, you can hoard water and that has a certain, you know, if it's dry, and, and you can hoard food if you can't eat. But Bitcoin hoarding has no advantage other than some psychic reward because Bitcoin's value is solely predicated on its utility to go and buy things. And so what's happened is that there's this sort of conundrum in the world of Bitcoin. It's like, I want to hold my Bitcoin because I want it to be worth more and I want to make money. And so I don't want to spend it and be stupid. But if nobody spends it, then the whole ecology never takes off. And then the even worse thing is starting to appear, which is people start going, well, there are a thousand people who own half of Bitcoin. And really, this is just a Ponzi scheme to make a few people rich. And Bitcoin, quite frankly, is in a position now where that is a very real byline for a lot of stories to start to happen unless things change. So what I say to people, see if it's people who get upset with us that we've created money, dollars that have these abilities, what I say to them is, look, you can do two things. You can take your $1,000 worth of Bitcoin and convert it to $1,000 on BitReserve, and you can spend that money for 0.45% as Bitcoin instantaneously. It won't be fun because it's called money. It's called dollars, and it'll just sit there. And then you can refill your Bitcoin card with $1,000. Now you can walk the walk and talk the talk. So, so so you're able to participate in the actual transactions on the Bitcoin network, but reduce the exposure that you have to the volatility of the exchange rate. You can, you can use Bitcoin as money and as an investment. 
because money to everyone in America, because everything that we see is priced in dollars, are dollars. If you're a working mother, let's assume we're trying to make money for everybody, right? The Bitcoin's not just for rich people in Silicon Valley. Let's assume it's for everybody. So what would that look like? Well, we have a mother of, uh, of three who barely makes ends meet, and she has to pay her rent. Rent's $1,000, okay? Now, she can do two things. She has just enough money right now to make her ends meet and to pay her $1,000 in rent. She can hold it in Bitcoin. Well, if she does that, she may not make her rent, and she and her kids may get evicted. That's just the world that people yeah, live in. Yeah, because the Bitcoin might it, go down it, in value. It's the world outside of, of Silicon Valley of people who have money that they absolutely must have to live off of, right? Now, what if she were able to instead take that $1,000 in Bitcoin and transfer it to $1,000 in dollar value? Her rent, as we said, is $1,000. At the end of the month, she just converts her $1,000 in dollar value into Bitcoin and pays. Now what we've done is we've actually taken a real person who lives in the real world, who has real responsibilities, children who need to be fed and housed, and we've now actually allowed them to participate in the economy. So our hope is that we can get away from Bitcoin being about people who are really rich, who have a lot of money, who can extend the volatility, talking about you know uh, how everybody else doesn't get it. And what we can do is instead we can take Bitcoin and we can recognize that people need to be able to rely on having the money that they make every month in order to pay their bills. And unfortunately, even if people don't want to acknowledge that, in the United States, bills are in dollars. And in the UK, they're in pounds. And you're in Europe. And so if you really honestly, truly care about making Bitcoin successful and you honestly want to move it away from this sort of Silicon Valley, you know, fanboy money, what you have to do is you actually have to make it work for people who don't have a lot of money. Those people don't have the luxury of losing 30% in two weeks or 50% in one day. So what we've done is we've created a way for everybody to participate, not just the Bitcoin Quarters, but for people who actually need that money in the amount, if I have $100 that I set aside every week to go to the grocery store, if I have $99.50, that's too much. If people with three kids who are working, like, nobody wants that anxiety, right? So we've created a non-anxiety way, and we let people choose. Right now, we let them choose Bitcoin, dollar, yen, euro, won, uh, pound, but we'll keep adding as many currencies as there are people who have feelings about what to them represents safety. Now, how do you manage to actually do this? Are you taking possession of the yens or the dollars? Are they contracts for difference? Are they some type of swap or derivative? Like, what's the actual functionality and yeah. kind of the regulatory uh, aspects of all of this? So, the great thing is that the, the largest market in the world is a foreign exchange market. It's $5 trillion a day. And it's all handled by computers, and computers are really good at doing this. So, the way that we handle it so that it's instantaneous. So, if you, if you send Bitcoin from your WAN card, that Bitcoin will go just as fast as Bitcoin being sent from Coinbase, for and, instance. And this is and, a WAN card that's issued by BitReserve? Yes. Yeah, so let's, right? say, let's say you put your money in WAN or let's say you put your money in dollars, whatever it is. You have a, on BitReserve. On BitReserve. So you've transferred it into that value. Well, well, what we actually do is something that's very simple. When you move your money from Bitcoin to dollars, we actually sell your Bitcoin and put dollars in your account. And we do it at a very, very low cost, 0.45%. So you've now given up a little bit of money to basically have no volatility. So okay. it's kind of like going back to the full reserve banks, except you're letting people have their reserves held in a multitude of different uh, we are a, assets. That, that's right. We are a full... 100% full 100% reserve bank, full no re counterparty e risk e in that sense. E even more than that, we're also fully transparent. So the reserve chain, which is an extension of the blockchain, we publish in real time. As money moves around between these addresses that we have, 
we publish that. So you can see exactly what our liabilities are at any given time. What we also publish is, and, and we have an API for it as well, um, is the bit ledger. What that does is it tells you the, the total liabilities we have, the money we're holding, and it tells you exactly how we're holding that money. Not bonds, but currently it's all cash, but one day it'll say this bond at this date, at this price, at this maturity, and you will be able to today already, and, and I'm waiting for the first person to do it as a website, you can create a real-time balance sheet for our reserve. And it's a well-known uh, process. And every quarter we have a um, reserve audit where they come in, they call up all the banks to make sure we have all the money. They look at everything. They look at our processes and they do it every quarter. And then every year we'll switch. So that way you always know that the money is actually there, right? And that's a whole separate thing, which is I want to start a new form of competition, which is based on stewardship of people's money. And the only way to open that competition up is to be transparent. And the blockchain is great for that. The blockchain is, it turns out, one of its greatest innovations is we've borrowed the blockchain to create transparency because the blockchain abstracts the user but allows you to see the accounts. So inside of our service, a dollar card has a Bitcoin address. It just means when Bitcoin gets sent to it, it'll get converted into dollars. And the reason we call it the reserve chain is because this process of sending Bitcoin to a Bitcoin address and converting to dollars is beyond the scope of the blockchain. So right. we've extended the blockchain to include other forms of value, right? Or extended the a- application of how you're that, using that, that, that blockchain. That's correct. So our goal is to cut the cost of money down to zero, if we can, to allow people to hold money in whatever form it is that makes them most comfortable. So, so, so making greatly extending Bitcoin's liquidity, like its ability to seamlessly move in and out of all these different values in terms of stores of value. Bitcoin is the enabler of... The invisible glue between all of these different systems. You know, I sometimes kid, can't live with it, can't live without it. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's like Bitcoin is this amazing innovation, which has done what I never thought was possible, which is create a crack that might be levered open to create competition with the banks. Because... Go get a banking license. You can't do it. It's no different than going and trying to get a the slot. The most regulated industry right, in the right. world. Right, and, and it's not just regulated for consumers' benefit. It's also regulated like the airlines were. Yeah. And like, right. not just a bank license. Try to get a central bank it's like license. A central bank. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. It's just not going right. to happen. Right. So what Bitcoin did it is it opened the door and it forced the other banking system which and, is, and if just 1% of assets or even 0.1% is held in Bitcoin, it massively changes the rules of the game for all other assets. My, what I tell everybody internally is I want banks to have their Uber moment. And I'm around the world and, and I see wherever Uber is, the cabs get cleaner, the drivers get nicer, and they all take credit cards. <laughs> and the customer has a better experience and, and, for right. cheaper. And it forces the other cabs to be better, right? And I had this epiphany that like, hit me harder than probably anything in my career when I read that the banks generate $31.9 billion in 2012 on bounce check fees, which give you nothing. They only Hold make on, you feel 39.1 bill, 30, 31.9 billion. Billion go with to, a B? Like a billion? B, oh, B. my goodness. 31, just on bounce checks. Oh, just on bounce checks. No, and 20% <laughs> of banks do reverse processing. So if you write a $100 check and then five $1 checks and you have $100, right. they'll the process Right, the way they post the, them, the, bam, 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 you, they generate like five fees ex- that, instead that, of just one fee. That's right. So think about this. So Salesforce has about $4 billion in revenue now. It's a $40 billion company. The bounce check industry is $31.9 billion in 2012. What I realized was you can't... Not delivering a product. Nothing. I mean, people used to say Microsoft was a monopoly, but they never made $32 billion doing nothing. Literally nothing, right? So it dawned on me, it's like this and is And they're just, still taking advantage of the float on all these bounce checks. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, 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 exactly. And so, and so the thing that, that struck me was 
I grew up with all these monopolies and they got broken up and it was great. You know, the airline deregulation and brokerage deregulation and telecom deregulation. And what I realized is that those industries took money from the rich. Like you wanted to fly, it just costs a lot costs more. It just costs a lot right? of money. Wanted to broker, just costs a lot more. Wanted to call California, poor people didn't do that from New York. Okay. This is taking it from the bottom of society. Yeah, gr- grinding the you, faces of the poor. You are literally taking the people who don't have representation, by and large, and you're taking $32 billion out of them. And uh, no okay? recourse. Just in bounce check fees. Oh, remittance fees, uh, add, add account a, add fees. Add another 10% on $450 like, billion, dollars, right? So what I realized, this is so much bigger than Bitcoin. After 2008, they should have introduced competition, not reduced the number of banks. And, if, and, and increase the complexity, which makes it even more, likely to, more and, likely to fail. And when it does fail, it fails on an even grander scope. And, I mean, you have people like Soros now who are betting again that all of this is going to happen again. And you've got... When you, know, you look at the run on the good collateral, the hypothecation, rehypothecation, even of customer segregated accounts, and, I mean, this is a real and problem. Think of, and think of it this way. With all the problems in the banks, with Bitcoin $6 billion, why are they even paying attention to it? I want to say one thing about New York, because I think, you know, in the end, New York is probably good for Bitcoin because all the banks are basically never going to be able to compete because they're, they're locked into, they've been, an iron curtain, an iron curtain has been now built around New York. And the one thing that we've learned in the United States where we prize competition is that when people deliberately cut themselves off for competition, it has disastrous effects well, in the long well, run. Well, and we know exactly what's happening is they're trying to enforce price controls. And price controls always fail to market forces. They create shortages, uh, uses excuse to implement rationing of bank And we accounts, got rid of those in things. the 70s. That's well, what we did with telecom. Well, That's what we did with airlines. That's what we did. Yeah, well, we, right. we thought we did, but we didn't get rid of it with, say, highways, Correct. for example. Correct. And now we have shortages that make Soviet bread lines just absurd Correct. every time you're spending time in traffic. So, I mean, we do have our price controls, and we're trying to keep the price controls in terms of the time, money, and privacy with AML laws and all this stuff with the banks, but Bitcoin just eviscerates all of that. I mean, we've got these two-way ATMs that are $4,000. See, people hold up regulation. By the way, we're over the top with regulation. I mean, we de-anonymize people. We want to know who all the people are because we want them to be able to exchange money with each other and know who they're exchanging with. So we're fully transparent, and we've gone far beyond what any of the regulators are even going to ever ask us to do, but we're doing it for consumer reasons. But what people understand is regulation doesn't mean that they're helping you. Because when the airlines were regulated, it meant that a large percentage of the population couldn't go and the rest of the population overpaid. When the brokerage houses were regulated for Toronto Schwab, it meant only rich people had brokers. When the phone companies were regulated, it meant that long distance calls cost the equivalent of about $2 a minute to call across the United States. Regulation doesn't mean benefit for consumers, it actually can mean that you maintain monopolies for as long as those regulations stay in place. You cannot make $32 billion by making people feel bad and have competition. I was saying to people, like, if we noticed that people were trying to spend money that they didn't have, well, we wouldn't charge them and we wouldn't make them feel bad. But the question we'd ask ourselves is, what can we do to give them better insight so they know how much money they have? How many yeah, banks? Yeah, how about as soon as uh, the transactions processed to the network, you know that it moves out of the account. <laughs> and yet in the EU, for example, we have different settlement and clearing rules and fees and standards for all the different countries. I mean, they're, like it's a massive problem over there. How many banks do you think have sat around and said, guys, 
oh my God, we've got these working families, these mothers who are trying to take care of their kids and their job, and they're trying to keep track of all their money. How can we increase profits from them? And they're bouncing their checks. How do we make their life easier for them? Let's set a goal. Let's try to take the $32 billion in bounce check fees, and let's try to reduce it by 20% every year and make the business more convenient. None. Like, I bet that's never even happened. You look at Silicon Valley, where all of us live, right? You miss a product cycle, like Samsung. It's you can bad be done. for your business. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, BlackBerry. Like, you miss it? You don't even need to miss the product cycle. You can blow up your business like, like every bank, and you get resurrected bigger. You don't even need to but, execute. But only because they've got a monopoly on what we use as currency. Exactly. Which is also unconstitutional. If you want to see like how they're continuing to stop competition, ask about people who are doing Bitcoin how hard it is to get a bank account. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you're required to have a bank account, but if they don't give you a bank account, it's another way that you can try to stop it's, competition. It's a prior restraint, you could say. Shifting gears, you were the founder of CNET, one of the major kind of publication sites that came up during the internet. And during your panel here at Money 2020, you'd made a comment about how you had the internet, but there wasn't anything above it in the stack and you actually had to build your own software in order to get the publication done. Yeah, we literally had built, uh, it was a product was called Story Server because I always serve up stories. Uh, Vignette actually became the fastest growing software company in history, I think, and a $26 billion company off selling Story Server. I had to build my own software because it didn't exist. So, And then I didn't want to be both in the software development business and in the content business. So I took that part of our business, spun it off. So now... Somebody wants to start a, a CNET, they can go get WordPress, which is developed on Git for free, and bam, they got content management system, and boom, it's they're off and running. I, I, now that you don't have to buy the software, you don't have to buy the hardware. You, the whole the whole stack is now basically rentable for ten dollars a month yeah, from Amazon and hosted. Right. Yeah. Now, on your panel, you talked about how Bitcoin is kind of at the culmination of all of these additional technologies that we've built in the past. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about how? Bitcoin is this layer in where you see BitReserve being an additional layer on top of that, and then other layers that will also be needed to be built on top of Bitcoin to make it even more usable and functional for people to apply in their lives. You know, it's interesting because there was a small group of us really who did stuff on the internet. And it was funny, I was up on the panel with those guys, but it was like me and Jerry Yang and a couple other guys. Jerry was, Yang, I Yahoo, mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a long time ago. But it, was, it was like <laughs> that. I mean, it was just a couple of young oh, you, guys. Oh, you're on the panel I, with Jerry I was Yang. Older, Jerry was 27. <laughs> I was 28 or 29. I mean, it was the same kind of thing. And so now I'm the old guy. And um, <laughs> The world turns. And the world, the world uh, does turn. Um, and the one thing that I wish people who looked at Bitcoin would maybe see a little differently, what all of us saw on the Internet was this amazingly indestructible infrastructure that was based on open standards and would let us publish everywhere. And there were no gatekeepers. Innovation without permission. Innovation without permission. It's perfectly said. And ironically, the flame mail we got back then was from university students who thought we were commercializing their little world. I mean, it's hard to believe, (laughs) but it was really true. So we we all saw this, and the VC saw this, and everybody kind of came in. What we saw was this distributed nature allowed for the centralization of really, really amazing services. I put a circle around CNET because we became the center of the digital universe. And just my software downloading service had 10 million people a day finding software. I centralized this function that everybody could share in at very low cost. eBay did the same thing. You know, we all did. The only thing about Bitcoin that I think people are going to have to get past, and that is that the decentralized nature of Bitcoin ensures its survivability in the same way that the decentralized nature of the internet 
ensured its survivability and inability to be stopped. Now, when you say the internet, are you saying like TCPIP protocol I'm, I'm or the TC, actual TC, underlying I'm hardware of the internet? TCPIP and the way the networks interlink, the internet was a collection of networks. Take out any one of them and it routes around. Right. It was designed by the United States military With to, DARPA, be in, ARPANET. to be totally resilient. You can't stop it. You could blow up pieces after pieces after pieces, and it would still route to all the other ones that are that are there. And when we're talking about routing, we're talking about protocol. We're talking about the protocol level with the ability to send data between points doesn't stop because you blow up the one internet of them, one of in them, Algeria, yeah. Yeah. you know, or even in San Jose for that matter. It was loosely coupled, so you could plug in all these different kinds of networks: a corporate network, a high-speed network, a cable network. So that's what we all saw. And then Bitcoin comes along and I see the same thing again. I see these servers being set up everywhere. I see a lot of inefficiency of everything being replicated every single place. But what I see in the inefficiency, and by the way, Bill Gates wasn't dumb when it took him until December of 97 to realize that the internet was the future. He's a very smart guy. It was very easy to look at it and all of its frailties and all of its issues and not think that it was going to turn into something, right? So you could look at it, a perfectly brilliant person like Bill Gates could ignore it until December of 1997 over Christmas when he realized he needs to turn the whole company around because the internet is the future. So it wasn't obvious to people. Some of us were early, but for most people it really was not obvious. Now we have Bitcoin, and Bitcoin has miraculously been created at this really fertile time, you know, 2008, and you know, it's happened in the banks and the whole thing. And somebody invents this ability to move value around that literally can't be destroyed unless you can take out every single server everywhere because they're all mirrors of each other. Yeah, and c- censorship resistance. It's censorship re- resistant. There is no point of control. And the it's, network security is primo with Bitcoin. Yeah. So when I looked at the internet, I said, oh, TCPIP, HTML, which was HTML 1.0, didn't have much. So I looked at these things and I said, well, that's all great. But that doesn't create a publishing company because you need to build software to do that. So I was fortunate. All of my uh, engineers were at Bell Labs and Bellcor, and they were all in Watcher, New Jersey, and they were brilliant. Andy Worth had done a big document management project, and he built Vignette. And so we layered on top of the Internet that had nothing but these protocols and standards. We layered an actual application that made that do something, namely publish. So that you could actually impact people's lives. And then, you know, we got this potential, potential. but we actually have to build software on top of it to realize the potential. Exactly. So then when that software then was sold, then every newspaper, you know, the country built it because it had all of our knowledge, not only about software, but also about workflow and all that kind of became were transferred. So now we have the same amazing thing and we have this indestructible infrastructure, but people want to replicate the infrastructure in their business. There's nothing wrong with centralization. You don't have to have one or the other. You can actually have both. Our power is centralized, you know, and maybe they'll come up with a better way of decentralizing it. Salesforce is centralized. CNET was centralized. The religious fervor that created this amazing thing, it can't get so carried away that it moves away from kind of what the consumer wants. The consumer doesn't want a complicated thing they got to stitch together. What they really want is this system that is actually created, and I would have bet impossible, a credible threat to the banking industry of the world. And I mean threat in competition. Not obsolescence. Anyway. Obsolescence. <laughs> D- deserved, earned obsolescence. Hey, it's just part of humanity's journey from the swamps to the stars, it, you know, in our right, evolution. Exactly. And so what I saw is like, okay... Bitcoin's great, but if my mom's going to be on this and the people who a lot of people have known in my life, they can't withstand the volatility of Bitcoin. But I want them to be able to participate in what this is about. 
And so what we think we're doing, or we're trying to do, is we're trying to create a bigger boat for people to come in. You don't have to accept Bitcoin volatility to spend Bitcoin money at places that accept Bitcoin. A boat that holds 100% reserves and can hopefully be a preserve against all of the financial catastrophe that's just been already misallocated and waiting to be administered. <laughs> and what we're hoping happens, actually, and we'll start next year, we need to, we want to make sure that we prove to everybody that it can be done, but our hope is that other companies will do what we do. As we say, what you do with your money is your business, what we do with your money is everybody's business. The more people who follow us along the path of transparency, what we end up doing is we end up creating a banking system that is better in every regard. Well, except in creating the moral hazard for people well, in, that are working inside the banking industry. Yeah. It's not good for them. Yeah. They, you know. No. And, <laughs> and, you know, I had people who came up to me and they said, well, you know, you don't have the $150,000 FDIC guarantee. And I would look at them and say, But oh, there's oh, no oh. fractional reserve. I'm like, okay, but some people got their $150,000 back. But the actual cost was $4.7 trillion. Like, let's, let's not think that it's the FDIC thing. And, by the way, if that FDIC plaque on the wall meant banks didn't crash anymore, I'd be all for it. But two major ones have happened, the savings and loan crisis and the most recent one in my 49 years. And yes, we ended up giving those people back their $150,000 or $250,000, I guess, ultimately. But the $4.7 trillion that was the total cost is equal to the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, both Gulf Wars, putting a man on the moon in current dollars, by the way, with an extra trillion left over. <laughs> oh my right? goodness. What are we trying to solve? We're not the 150,000. Why, why are we preserving are, this obsolete system? So that we pay people to blind themselves from whether the institutions that have their money should have their money. So transparency, we are doing, it's out. It's, you know, I'm and, hoping to see it show up, data show up everywhere. And moving forward, true 24 hour accounting in a lot of ways. It is a real time proof of solvency at all times. Yeah. And we'll be so forever. You know, this is really going to suck a lot of the oxygen out of what the banks are currently surviving on. They survive on the floats. They survive on these fees. They survive on all the fractional reserving that they're able to do. It's interesting because here's the way I look at it. I don't have anything against the banks. I don't have any of these people who work in the banks. I don't... Well, they I, serve I, the I, good I think, purpose. I think people generally do what they're supposed to do in the, in the role that they're in in life. We have a structural problem. It right. Is, it, 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 Just it, like it, newspapers have a structural it, problem right. we have a, in the we, information we, we have a structural problem that is structurally ensuring that a bunch of institutions that don't have the technology or the will, the desire, maybe even the people to innovate, are basically in command of the economy. It's not a blaming the bank or blaming... No, it's, it's just a systemic problem. It's a systemic problem. That and poses a risk to society as a whole. You know, Lanos is working for us. He's trying to handle this in, you know, from a regulatory standpoint. But this has to be a policy standpoint. We have to decide as a country because every company I've started has been in the United States. We're a Cayman Island company. And I don't know a lot of companies that are trying to, you know, they're rushing to the United States in this area to some to even operate, but many to uh, incorporate in the United States because it is such an unknown and we are what Europe used to be. We are now Europe. They, they're one market for money. We're 48 different states uh, and then add the federal government. We've actually flip-flopped with Europe. Yeah, so, isn't that the irony that, you know, not only are we going to be ground zero for this monetary and financial crisis that is coming down the pipeline, but we've also trammeled ourselves with the regulation that prevents the people who see it coming from actually providing a solution. It. Yeah, providing a solution. That, <laughs> that, that, it's very that problematic. Is, that is exactly right. And in my opinion, could pose a major risk to U.S. national security. There's no doubt. 
I mean, there's just no doubt. You know, I don't want to focus it on the banks. I want to focus it in a positive way. There's that we a want to build a system. solution. We need the right to compete. We need the right to compete. Here's the thing. With New York State, assuming that they're not disingenuous, assuming that they really want to protect consumers and they're not just trying to build an iron curtain around uh, around New York, let's assume. Let's, let's roll the tape back to 1996 through 2000. There was a stratospheric amount of money that was invested in bad ideas and lost. Stratospheric. Enormous amounts of money. People tried everything. Every stupid idea under the world was tried, and, and they were all funded. And you know what we got for that? Ownership of the Internet. Every major company in the world that had anything to do with the Internet was in the United States. Yeah, there was waste. Guess what? Innovation, trying new things, taking risks, it produces waste. And, and but it also produces it also produces a fertile, active, it, growing It produces economy. the Facebooks, the Googles, the Ebays, the Yahoos, the Amazons, like Go everything, on on, right? Go on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> Name all. Now, who's the biggest, the most recent internet IPO? Oh, wait. I thought Al- that was Chinese. I think that was Alibaba, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, London, I mean, I've been to the Bank of England twice. I've been to 10 Downing Street. I, I got to tell you, they haven't fully figured out how to get out of their own way yet, but they are deadly serious about having that business in their country. Yeah, I, I actually, two weeks ago, I was on a panel uh, at the British consulate in New York. They are stealing all the startups. They get and it. And taking them they to get London. It. They get yeah. it. They get it. So I was asked by both Bank of England and 10 Downing Street, I said, well, what do we need to do? And I said, here's what we need to do. All of us have to do this really strange thing for starting a business. We have to hire a lawyer and ask them, where can we domicile? And I said, the first thing I'll tell you, the first thing that we told them, we got the best lawyers there were, is don't be in the United States. Okay, <laughs> That's what we need and, for and, U.S. national security. So, so Run I, off all our so, entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I said, <laughs> so I, I, because the people are in England, the U.K., they're just asking this question. I said, what you should do is call the lawyers up who are giving advice and ask them what they're saying and why. And then you figure out what you need to do so that they say, <laughs> go, there. Know, go there. Well, I know one of my companies, Natagio, it's uh, based out of Isle of Man, domiciled in the U.K., yeah. You know, yeah. like because they can't do business in the U.S. You know, And they get it over there and they're focused on it over here. And, and look, I've created a lot of really big companies in the United States and a lot of jobs. I mean, all these companies are now global anyway. But I think it's unfortunate that there's like nobody as like who when when the Japanese were competitive, we all got you know, everyone got up in arms and like we need to. Uh, improve quality and we need to uh, improve teamwork you know the whole nation sort of felt like we were coming behind and we needed to do stuff and and so we you know we deregulated we did all kinds of things now it's like the boiled frog right <laughs> yeah. it's like creeping 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 regulatory burden and nobody is going oh my god we're falling behind alibaba is one of the biggest internet companies in the world and they're not in the united states anymore and they got some other big ones over there, too. So it's like, it's the frog. And I don't know whether we'll wake up uh, in this country in time to kind of co-opt a lot of what's um, what's going on today. But, you know, when you well, look at what... Well, hope, hopefully we will. You know, hopefully I, we will. And if not, then uh, never before has the world been as small a place. Like, you can just leave. You know, which is happening. You know, people, very skilled, sophisticated, wealthy people are just leaving the U.S. and taking their investments with them. You know, that's unfortunate, but it just is what it is. Well, I've committed that there will never be a bit reserve of China. Bit reserve will be the bit reserve of China. So when I look at New York and I look at our office in Shanghai and I say, what do I want to do? Do 
0.2% of the population of the world is in New York. Do I want to go all the... Hoopla, hoopla how to deal with them. Do that. Or do I want to go over and fight it out in China, in where Shanghai, there are 1.3 yeah. billion people, and they're ultimately going to... And know, they're all working hard. And they're all working hard. My decision was made. I have zero interest in... We all have limited resources. I'm going to China over New York, you know, 100 times out of 100, because the bang for the buck is greater. And, yeah, that's um, where the ROI is. Well, you know... We're out of time, way over. Thanks so much for helping us. It it reminds me of something that Jamie Dimon said. He said, you know, we got to watch out for those Bitcoin guys. They're going to eat our lunch. <laughs> and so, you know, we've had CEO of BitReserve eating Jamie Dimon's lunch. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. 